One of the things that surprised me when Izzy and I first got married was the way that our two family backgrounds collided together in the forming of a new family. I didn't realise it, but it turns out that I was far more shaped by the way my family had always done things than I cared to admit. Whether it was the way the dishes were done or what we took with us when we were invited to someone's house or how we celebrated someone's birthday, sometimes we would look at each other and just think, what are you doing? You're doing it wrong. My family has always done it like this. And even though I'm fully aware of the strangeness of my own family, and I think Izzy would admit hers is pretty strange as well, we would both become strangely protective if the other person insinuated that there was maybe something wrong with our family. Like, I think I could say something about my mum. Like, I find this a little bit frustrating about my mum. And then two days later, Izzy would say almost exactly the same thing. And I would go, that is my mother you're talking about? (laughs) Not cool. Because families are often like that. We can find our own family a little bit ridiculous, but also incredibly precious. Families can be annoying and inconvenient at times, but it can be hard to imagine what life would be like without them. And even if your family experience has been one marked mostly by pain and heartache, the depth of that kind of suffering itself is a testimony to the fact that family matters deeply. And it is interesting then that the New Testament speaks about our relationships together as Christians using the language of family more than anything else. And so our church experience is often like that, isn't it? Church can be strange and frustrating. It can be both ridiculous and precious. Sometimes church can be annoying or inconvenient, but the Christian life would be inconceivable without the fellowship we share with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have ever experienced deep hurt in churches, that in itself reflects the fact that church matters deeply. Because the truth is, church is family. That's what Jesus says so provocatively in Mark chapter 3. In verse 33, he asks that question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so those disciples that Jesus called at the beginning of that passage Jess read for us, they became not only his followers, but his family. And on the one hand, those words of Jesus give great dignity to our family relationships. It is right that we care about our biological families because God has made them for a purpose, to point us to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus relativizes our family relationships. Jesus says that our flesh and blood relationships pale in significance to our relationship with him. The most defining relationship in any of our lives is whether or not we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are we seated there in that circle around him or are we standing on the outside looking in? And that's a pretty stunning claim, isn't it? It causes Jesus' own family to say he's out of his mind, 
the conservative religious types who were probably very big on family values, they accuse him of being possessed by a demon. I mean, even for us today, we might think, oh, it's a little bit extreme. And yet, this is the reality that flows out from the very heart of the gospel. Because in the gospel, we are adopted and accepted and welcomed into the family of God. That's the truth that we believe. And that truth creates a reality as we're seated here with brothers and sisters, all seeking to do the will of God together. Another way you could put it is there's this gospel doctrine that must lead to a gospel culture within the community of God's people. The truth that we believe and then a reality that we live out in our life. There's the biblical message of salvation by grace and the shared experience of that grace together. So that's what we're going to think about today. The gospel doctrine of adoption and then the gospel culture here at church. So let's start with gospel doctrine, because that truth that we're thinking about today, that church is family, that depends upon a prior truth, that God in Christ has adopted us. Now, I suspect that for many of us, the challenge here is not simply believing that is true, but learning to marvel again at just how incredible that truth really is. The gospel is so much more than just having our sins forgiven and given a clean slate because God establishes relationship with us. And that new relationship that we share is not that of a servant or of a slave. God calls us his sons and daughters. Just let these words from 1 John chapter 3 wash over you and settle into your heart. The Apostle writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And that is what we are. God not only calls us sons and daughters, he bestows on us the reality itself. The Father has sent his Son into the world Together they have poured out the spirit of adoption into our hearts so that human beings like us can become a part of the divine family. It's not a kind fiction, it's the real thing. We are children of the Father. Jesus himself is our saviour and our brother. That's the glorious truth of the gospel of adoption. Now, I remember when this really hit home for me for the first time. I read a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer when I was 24, almost exactly 10 years ago. And I remember reading the chapter on adoption and just being stopped in my tracks. And genuinely, I think to this day, the most significant thing that I've ever read. And in the chapter, Packer talks about adoption as the highest privilege offered to us in the gospel. And he explains that we can easily fixate on the forgiveness of sins and being justified before God. And he says, yeah, they are absolutely foundational and necessary for our salvation. How wonderful that God the judge declares us not guilty. The fact that we are given God's mercy as a free gift is incredible. 
But in and of itself, it doesn't imply that we have any relationship now with God. It doesn't lead to deep fellowship or closeness with God the judge. But, Packer continues, contrast this now with adoption. Adoption, he says, is a family idea. It's conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is something greater. Last week we considered the truth that people are lost without Jesus. And what do lost people really need? They need more than forgiveness. They need more than just a fresh start. They need to be brought home. That's the climax of those stories when someone is lost and then found, isn't it? It's they're embraced by their family. And they find themselves again in the safety of home. That is what God does for us in the gospel. And so now we enjoy the freedom and privilege of being members in his household. We now know his compassion and encouragement. He pours out on us his provision and protection. We have free access to the throne of his grace with confidence. We can cry out, Abba, Father, by the power of the Spirit, God our Father will never cast us out and we will one day inherit all that he has promised as heirs of everlasting salvation. It's the truth of adoption. It is the highest privilege and the greatest blessing that God gives to us through his son Jesus. And it is given to us We can't just have that on our own because as soon as we walk through the front doors of the household of God as sons and daughters of the Father, we look around and discover that we have all of these new brothers and sisters. Because the biblical gospel of a doctrine is not just a truth to write down on paper. It's not just something you need to learn to pass an exam at Bible college. It's not a theological flag to fly. The gospel creates a new kind of community with a grace-filled relational environment that we can see, that we can feel, that we can experience. It creates a visible reality that can be observed and witnessed by the world around us. In other words, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. It's the very thing that the doctrine is for. So Ray Ortland paints a picture of what that community is like. He says, in this new kind of community, which only the gospel can create, desperate sinners coming to Christ have nothing to fear. They are finally safe as a part of God's family. And so they can open up about what's really going on in their lives. They can find healing for the past and hope for the future. This new kind of church feels like heaven on earth. And the way to get there is not by slick packaging, but by gospel rebuilding. It's what the doctrine is for, building a new kind of community to compel the attention of the world. And so if we want an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel, which I think we do, and if we want that message to make more and more of an impact 
on the people around us, and I think we do, then it will only happen as gospel truth becomes more and more a lived reality in the life of our church family here at St Mark's. Now, the great challenge for any church, and even churches like ours where we do experience so much of that felt experience of the Christian life, the great challenge for us is that we will always naturally drift away from a gospel-shaped culture to a culture that looks just like the world around us. And so instead of that drift, what we need to do is consciously and continually shift away from the way things work in the world to the way things really are in Jesus. And so tonight I'm going to suggest three shifts that we need to keep making together in the life of our church. We need to shift from fear to fullness, from inclusion to welcome, and from consumption to service. We'll think about each of those. So firstly, we need to shift from fear to fullness. Um, C.S. Lewis once gave a lecture called The Inner Ring. And in it, he described the way that so many relationships and communities in the world end up being governed basically by fear and anxiety. And he says that whether you're in the school playground or the university classroom or in your workplace office, there can always be that sense that there's a small select group of people who are really, like they're the in-group, you know, they're the ones who are in the know, they're at the, the, the centre of things. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you sometimes get that feeling? Lewis says this, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside. And so it can make us do everything to be a part of that inner sanctum. But then the problem is when we get there, we still have that sense that actually maybe there's a ring inside of this ring. And we can never shake the suspicion that we're kind of always on probation, that we might get kicked out or excluded again, that we could find ourselves standing once more on the outside. And so communities in the world can so often be characterised by just a lingering anxiety that we don't measure up, that we could be missing out. And I think that same dynamic can absolutely exist within a church. Not just that little groups, little cliques can form that are exclusive within the wider community. Of course, that is something that can happen. But I'm talking more about just that lingering feeling that we're lacking something. It could happen because we feel that our church is small and insignificant and we need more influence at the centre of society where things are really happening. Or we could feel that we need more people to come to our church so that our church will look more impressive and interesting to outsiders looking in. Or it could work the other way. We could love our church and we could find the community so precious but we could treat it as something fragile and feeble, that it, could, it just won't be the same if too many different people come and join us. And so churches can be driven along by proud posturing or anxious striving or fretful isolation. We can feel empty, that we don't measure up, that we're somehow missing out and that anxiety can seep in to every aspect of a church culture. 
And so what we need to do is make a shift from fear to fullness. We've just heard, haven't we, that God has invited us into the only inner ring that really matters. We are children in the very family of God. We are brothers with Jesus, who is the divine emperor of the entire cosmos. I mean, talk about friends in high places. This is given fullest expression at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. We're told that God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're not lacking anything because Jesus is for us. We've been freely given the fullness of Jesus himself. And that means that the local church, what's happening right here, right now, is the epicenter of God's action in the world. Now, of course, we long for more and more people in Northbridge to know Jesus and to be a part of our fellowship here at St. Mark's. But that's not because we're lacking something and we need them to come and fill us up. No, we're full already. The problem is the people around us are empty and the only thing that will fill them up is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're the only people in Northbridge who have have that to offer. They need us. And our fellowship here at St. Mark's is not feeble, it's not fragile. We have been filled with the very fullness of God. And as more and more people come to know Jesus, our fellowship won't be diluted or diminished in any way. It will only become more beautiful and more glorious because that's the way the fullness of God works. It's always striking to me how the New Testament has such a tone of non-anxious cheerfulness. I mean, those first Christians, they were a tiny minority in the Roman Empire. They had less than zero political influence. They were often harassed and persecuted, but they lived out of this unshakable fullness in everything that they said and did. And I think that the modern church needs to rediscover that cheerful confidence that comes from knowing that we already have everything in Christ. And so we can shift our culture from fear to fullness. Which leads then to a second shift from inclusion to welcome. Now, of course, inclusion is probably as close as our modern society has to a sacred value. Being inclusive is just about everything. And of course, being inclusive is a very good thing. Far better to be inclusive than exclusive and intolerant. But I do want to say that for us as God's people, inclusion is a very low bar. And the gospel calls us to something higher. Because inclusion kind of treats us all as atomized individuals who can exist together in the same space. But inclusion actually doesn't demand that much from me. It's possible for me to include you and then just get on with doing my own thing with little reference to who you are or what you're doing. And so the gospel calls us to move beyond mere inclusion to a kind of full-orbed, wholehearted welcome. Paul draws this out for us in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The inclusion treats people as isolated individuals, but welcome is about joining our voices together in harmony so that with one voice we would sing a united song of praise. Inclusion means I won't kick you out, but welcome requires that I care for you. Inclusion means I'll let you be here, that's fine, but welcome demands that I actively love you, that I look out for you, that I listen to you, that I seek to learn from you. Just as Jesus welcomes us, we must welcome one another. And doesn't Jesus do so much more than simply tolerate us? Jesus is not aloof from us. He doesn't keep us at arm's length, but he reaches out to us with industrial strength embrace. Hebrews 2 verse 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I love that idea. It's like Jesus is our big brother and he puts his arm around us and he's proud that we're a part of his family. And so how can we settle for anything less than wholehearted welcome as the felt relational culture of our church here at St. Mark's? And so that means that we might need to arrive at church at 4.55 rather than 5.05 in order to welcome others as they arrive for our service. It might mean that as we welcome one another, we don't just say hello as people are passing by. Romans 15 does not read, say hi to each other as Christ has said hi to you. And so gospel welcome is going to mean that we look when we walk into church and see if there's anyone who's sitting by themselves. In a culture of welcome, someone alone is a gospel emergency. And so that means we might not sit in the same spot every week or with the same people. It might mean that we're going to be brave and speak to someone new, even if you have no idea what you are possibly going to talk about with them. It's going to mean just asking questions and being genuinely interested in their answers. I think it's also going to mean that those who have been around at St. Mark's for a long time will need to take more initiative to offer welcome to those who are newer. It's also going to mean that those who are older are going to need to take the first move in showing welcome to those who are younger. Young people. It's also going to mean that you need to make an effort when someone older than you tries to strike up a conversation with you. So that might mean giving answers that are like two sentences rather than two words. Actually, there was a great little moment this morning where Elliot Shale, I said, how was your weekend, Elliot? And you could, he said, good, thanks, and then realised he needed more words. And so he kept talking. And then he just asked me, how are you going? It was just a wonderful example of a young person hearing God's word and seeking to show welcome to me. For all of us, I think it's going to mean that praying to, that we should pray to God for him to grow affection and welcome in our hearts for those particular people in our church family that we find particularly frustrating. And it's going to require actively remembering that Jesus welcomed us not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. And so as we shift from mere inclusion to gospel welcome of one another, it will bring glory to God. 
which leads to the final shift that we need to make, and that's from consumption to service. Because just as the world around us is highly individualistic, it's also very consumeristic, isn't it? It's like those things after the budget when it's always, what does this mean for me? That's the way we think. What can I get out of this? How is this going to serve me? And it's very easy for that culture just to drift into the way we think about church. And so we could start thinking of church in the same way that we think about the gym. You know, I come to the gym and do what I need to do for my physical health. And in the same way, I just come to church and get what I need out of it for my spiritual health. And we might even think that, well, if I don't go to the gym, the only person who misses out is me. And so if I miss miss out on church one week, then it's no big deal. And actually, even then, I can listen to the sermon later, right? And so maybe I'm not really missing out at all. Well, if church is about consuming spiritual information, then sure, that could be true. But as we've seen tonight, church is not a centre for dispensing truth. It is a spiritual family. And so that's going to require our physical presence and activity as we gather together as a family of believers. Just listen to that activity as it's expressed in Romans 12. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It paints a picture, doesn't it, of active, devoted, zealous service, not passive, impersonal consumption. And this is the mindset that we can all bring into church with us every single Sunday. Because every part of our church gathering is actually an opportunity for us not just to be served, but to serve. And so as you walk in, you can receive welcome and give welcome. During the singing, you can be uplifted by Lockie and Carol as they play for us and lead us. But you can also uplift others as you raise your voice and to sing with the people around you. Even just your example of listening to this sermon here in the room with other believers is far more encouraging to the people around you than you realise. And can I say, it's always encouraging to me. After the service, you can receive prayer and you can offer prayer. You can receive encouragement and give encouragement. You can ask questions and give answers. You can eat supper and you can serve supper. And as much as I love podcasts, which is a lot, as some of you know, you just can't do any of those things on Spotify. And so we need to make that shift from consuming to serving in our church culture. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus asked that question, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Do you know what the answer is to that? Here they are. You are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so that means that you're my brothers and sisters as well. And Jesus is with us at the centre of all we do, even now as we gather together. And that means that our church is guided and governed by so much more than human niceness. The risen Christ himself, through his gospel, is energising us to do God's will together. And it's God's will for us that we both enjoy and extend the fullness that we've been given in Christ. 
It's God's will for us that we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. It's God's will for us that we give ourselves in devoted service to this family to which he has called us. And yeah, church is still going to be strange. Sorry, you can't get out of that. Sometimes you will find church frustrating and inconvenient or just downright ridiculous. But as the gospel keeps shaping who we are as a church here at St. Mark's, mostly we will find our fellowship to be sweet and precious. And I, for one, just cannot imagine following Jesus without it. Let's pray. Father of all, our Father, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and you brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love. He gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. He ushered us into your household. And so may we live his risen life May we bring life to others. May we shine the light of Jesus to the world. Keep us firm in the gospel hope that you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free and so that everyone in Northbridge and indeed the whole earth would live to praise your name through Christ our Lord and our brother. Amen.